today on Ag News Daily. You know, and, and the other thing I would mention, and I've been mentioning to farmers that have talked to me, is that, you know, this is just not a one-size-fits-all year. Um, we're going to have to uh, have flexibility. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. It's Ashton Carr on the podcast today with Delaney Howell. And Delaney, I tell you what, it's kind of a wonderful Wednesday. If you like the kind of weather that's going on in Lubbock right now, it's a little bit misty and kind of gloomy. It's I think the high for today is around 45. So I've got a, a big pot of baked potato soup ready for me whenever Ooh. I eat dinner tonight. So I'm kind of having a great day. What about you? Ashton, if you lived closer to me, I'd be coming over for dinner tonight. I'll see what I can do about packaging it up and sending it out there to you, but I'm not sure that it'll be good by the time it gets there. Yeah, I think unfortunately not, but I could also use a little soup today. It's a cold, misty day here in uh, Des Moines, Iowa as well. But I tell you what, tomorrow night I will be having a great dinner. I am moderating a panel for Nyman Ranch, which is mostly pig production. So I'll be working with some farmers tomorrow morning and then tomorrow evening they're doing a virtual cooking experience. So they sent me some different meats and ingredients and I will get to kind of follow along with a chef, a pretty good chef from what it sounds like, and he's going to teach us how to make his specialty pork chops. So I'm excited for that. That sounds amazing. You're going to have to tell us how it all turns out. I will. I might have to take some pictures, especially if it turns out well. If it doesn't turn out well, you'll know because I won't be posting any pictures. But <laughs> I tell you what, Ashton, there is a big headline I think we need to start out today's podcast with. I was just reading through some news before we started the podcast today, and I'm sure this is hitting the news wire for many farmers as well, especially those who are corn producers, because President Trump has taking, taken a very specific stance when it comes to ethanol. He has instructed the EPA to deny small refinery petitions under the renewable fuels standard. So he has been going, you know, pretty much the entire time of his administration here, his uh current role as president, he's been kind of going back and forth whether or not he would side with the ethanol folks or with the oil folks and allow these small refinery waivers. Well, we saw three different sources, Reuters, Bloomberg, and now AgriPulse has the story as well, have sorted, have cited, excuse me, that President Trump has, quote, instructed that dozens of oil refiner requests for retroactive waivers from U.S. biofuel laws be denied. And so this could gain him a lot of backlash from farm country at the ballot box in November. So we will continue watching this, but uh, he is definitely taking a stance here, it does seem. Yeah, Delaney, I actually read a little bit about that myself, and I have some ethanol news to follow up with that. A three-year fuel pump infrastructure program led by the National Corn Growers Association has delivered 50,000 fuel pumps across the country that support higher octane levels. 
NCGA president Kevin Ross told Brownfield Ag News they worked with Wayne Fueling Systems to produce and sell the pumps that pump a blend up to E25. And he was quoted as saying, that was a really fantastic opportunity for us, not just right now with E10 and E15 usage levels, but really moving into the higher level blends that we would like to get to down the road. 50,000 fuel pumps, that's a big deal right there. NCGA has also partnered with the Renewable Fuels Association to help retailers apply for the USDA's Higher Blends Infrastructure Incentive Program, which includes $86 million to expand the availability of higher blends like E15 and E85. And so far, those efforts have reached applicants representing more than 1,100 fuel dispensers across 21 states. NCGA Market Development Vice President Jim Bauman says if the U.S. were to move to a higher octane mid-level blend of ethanol long term, it could create five, excuse me, create five billion gallons of new ethanol demand equivalent to 1.2 billion bushels of corn annually. So it really does seem that the Trump administration is starting to shake things loose here. Um, I, I think President Trump maybe is fearful that rural America would not support him at the ballot box this this November. And I think he is taking some measures to make sure that he can get reelected, at least when it comes to his rural voters. Yeah, I, I read something along the lines of I don't I can't remember if it was him being fearful of his losing support within the farm belt, but it was definitely something about Trump's concern with his relationship with voters in the farm belt. So it certainly sounds that way. Absolutely. It certainly does. But switching tracks here just a little bit, looking over at the trade scene, we have seen the USDA's Foreign Agricultural Service raised their forecasts for Chinese soybean imports for the 2020, excuse me, 2019-2020 and the 2020-2021 marketing years as the country continues to make those large purchases from the United States. So the forecast now is set at 95 million metric tons for both marketing years. It's a 4 million ton increase above an earlier prediction. And so they noted that feed production is projected to rise pretty steadily over in China. And that is where they are allocating some of those increased exports to China coming from. So on on a Tuesday here, I think this didn't get mentioned in the podcast yesterday, but uh, just notably, you know, Tuesday, USA reported sales of 664,000 metric tons of U.S. soybeans headed to China for the new marketing year. So China's continuing to step in and uh, USDA is acknowledging that with their export forecasts. Well, Delaney, I have just one last piece of news, and it also involves the USDA, but taking it back to the Trump administration, they said today it will stop requiring U.S. plants that produce egg products to have full-time government inspectors in the first update of inspection methods in 50 years. Now, I thought this was pretty big news And under a new rule that takes effect immediately, the USDA will allow companies like Cargill to use different food safety systems and procedures designed for their factories and equipment. 
And the change marks the Trump administration's latest move to ease government relations, or not government relations, but government regulations over the nation's food system. And some inspectors and public interest groups have warned food safety may suffer as a result. But this new rule affects 83 plants that USDA has been inspecting, according to the USDA, and it will assume oversight from the Food and Drug Administration of additional facilities that produce egg substitutes. And from what the article that I've been been reading says, inspectors will visit plants only once per shift instead of being there when egg products are being processed. And the change first proposed in 2018 makes inspections consistent with those for meat and poultry products. So this new rule, I guess, is just trying to make things even between meat, poultry, and egg products, but I thought it was definitely something interesting to take note of. It certainly is, Ash, and I tell you one other thing to take note of today as we head into Talking Markets is what's going on on the crop conditions side of things. We saw crop reports come out yesterday showing corn at 61% good to excellent, right, on trade expectations, and soybeans at 65% good to excellent. So both about one percentage point down from the week prior. Um, but of course, remember, this week is USDA report week with the WASD coming out later this week. So we will continue to watch that, see how the crop matures and see how folks are doing once they get into the fields there. Absolutely, Delaney. And we will report on that tomorrow once that comes out. But other than that, I'm all out of news for today. I am as well. So let's take a look at the markets before we head over to a, another press conference you sat through to talk about the derecho storm damage. But the markets today were somewhat quiet when it came to the corn markets, but pretty explosive in the soybean markets, continuing that upward rally. The September corn contract lost a penny today to close at 3.50 even, while the December shed a penny and a half to close at 3.60 and a quarter. Soybeans closed up nine, excuse me, six and three quarters cents today to look at the close at 9.79 and three quarters. They've been on quite the uptrend here for about the last two weeks. Will they sustain those rallies? We'll talk about that more on Monday during our Market Monday conversation. But the November contract closed up as well, five and three quarters cents to end at 9.78 and three quarters. In the wheat pit, slight gain today in the September contract as it added three quarters of a cent to close at 5.34. Even the December shed a half a cent to close at 5.43 and three quarters. In the livestock pits, read right across the screen as the October live cattle contract shed a dollar oh seven to close at 104.70. The December down 97 and a half cents to end the day at 109.15. In the feeder pits, the September contract shed 55 cents today to close at 138.40. The October lost $1.60 to close at 138.25. Lean hogs little green today as the October contract added $1.47.5 to close at 61.37.5. The December up $1.17 to close at 59.85. And rounding out our markets with the Class 3 Dairy Milk Futures. September contract shed 23 cents to close at 16.62. The October down 33 cents to close at 18.48. Without further ado, Ashton, will you give us a little context to this upcoming press conference that you sat through? Yes, it actually was Iowa Secretary of Agriculture, Mike Nag, 
Iowa State University Extension and Outreach Agronomist Mark Litch and USDA Natural Resources Conservation Service Agronomist Mike Henderson. And what I gathered from this conversation is just talking about the drought in Iowa, crop damage, and some cover crop discussion. So it was definitely interesting, and I'm excited for our listeners to hear it. Thank you, uh, Mark uh, Licht and, and Mike Henderson for joining us this morning. So this is um, uh, a continuation of the sort of a series of these calls where we uh, uh, want to uh, make some of the expertise available uh, to answer questions and uh, certainly uh, attempt to help uh, get information out to folks that are uh, dealing with some very, very uncertain times, um, trying to make plans about what to do next, about uh, how to attack a harvest plan and uh, how to uh, also be thinking about 2021 and be ready to go and and, uh, prepared uh, to uh, put another crop in the ground and and hopefully be able to manage what's out there in a way this fall so that we can be in good shape for 21. And so, um, um, again, uh, thank you to to our experts for joining us today. Again, it continues to be a challenging uh, uh, situation across the state, both with uh, recovering from and dealing with the effects of the derecho and the wind uh, path, uh, the storm path of uh, now a few weeks ago, and also continued drought. And uh, we've seen now historic levels of drought in the state of Iowa, D3 drought in western, west central Iowa, uh, but uh, upwards of 96% of the state of Iowa is now in a drought classification D0 to D3. And we haven't seen that level of drought since September of 2013. So uh, make uh, no mistake, this is a situation that is impacting uh, the crop and impacting folks all across the state. And unfortunately, many, many folks uh, who are dealing with uh, all of the above situation where we have drought impact uh, with wind and, in fact, some hail on top of that. So uh, folks are continuing to uh, to deal with those issues. Had a chance yesterday, in fact, uh, have continued to travel the state to once again be in Benson County, Pauchik County, Iowa County, and uh, again, observe some of the, the damage and uh, starting to see uh, some fields that have been uh, declared a total loss and farmers are out uh, dealing with those fields then. And, and uh, I know that a lot of folks are uh, working with insurance adjusters and and uh, coming to decisions about about what that will look like, those claims will look like, and then also again what to do, uh, either in the form of a harvest plan or or otherwise. Um, so today we wanted to, uh, and last week we had talked about grain quality with Dr. Herberg, and that continues to be something that people need to be thinking about. There are great resources available with Iowa State University Extension. Today we wanted to highlight some of the agronomic issues and uh, specifically talk about cover crops and how they uh, can uh, factor into uh, the, the plan for the fall, especially in uh, particularly in cases where uh, folks will be looking at some aggressive tillage uh, to provide some cover and protect that land and also retain some uh, some nutrients. So uh, cover crops, as you know, is a it's one of our uh, main focus areas of the nutrient reduction strategy. Again, remember that we've got a whole host of a suite of practices that we would like to see implemented across the state in operations where they make sense. Uh, cover crops are an annual practice. They have to be done every year. And uh, weather, of course, is a dominant factor in, in whether or not those uh, crops can make sense and how well they perform. 
Um, but that's why we have management practices like tillage, uh, no-till, conservation tillage, uh, cover crops, nutrient management, coupled with edge-of-field practices, um, bioreactors, saturated buffers, wetlands, and, uh, and the like. Uh, in fact, tomorrow we'll get a chance to uh, do a couple of things. Secretary Sonny Perdue will be in the state. Uh, we're happy that he's coming out. We're going to get to observe some of the damage, uh, but we're also going to highlight conservation with the secretary and uh, take him to a wetland uh, project and, and be able to showcase some of the great work that's happening across the state. We're very, very proud of all the partnerships uh, that go into making these things happen. Uh, we're, uh, we're seeing a tremendous increase in the number of cover crop acres in the state of Iowa. Um, well over a million acres uh, today, headed for two very quickly, and that's because of a lot of uh, partnerships and work and awareness and education that's gone on, and a lot of folks uh, that have simply said, I'm going to try something, I'm going to learn, and I'm going to adjust and uh, expand onto more and more acres. And I'm really excited to see that green in the fall and uh, green early in the spring, and uh, that's a good thing because we know that's having the kind of impact that we want to have. So um, with that opening, I'm going to turn it over to Mark. And, um, and uh, Mark, take it away from here. Yeah, thanks, Mike. Um, yeah, I, I agree that uh, we've got a lot of challenges ahead of us, especially as we look at drought and we look at the, the damage from the severe winds that we had. Um, and, and when we think about cover crops, um, I know that there has maybe been, well, at least I've received a, a little bit of pushback on saying, how do we do this this fall, considering the challenges we're up against? Um, and and I, I do think it is a, a distinct possibility that, um, yes, things are going to be a little bit more difficult. Um, we're going to have to change how we maybe have done it in the past. Uh, but using cover crops is still a, a great option. It's still a viable option. And uh, we can still get uh, many of those benefits uh, from using cover crops. Um, so, you know, as I've, as I've been thinking about this and how do we kind of move forward, um, I, I generally have to say that we we have to acknowledge that they're outside of this first, um, largely because we, we do have dry conditions pretty much statewide right now. Um, and so when we think about it from the drought perspective, um, we need to make sure that we're pairing um, our seeding time and our seeding method up um, with the, the conditions that we have. And so, you know, normally right now, you know, a week ago through the next week or week and a half, we would normally be saying, yeah, let's get out there and let's do broadcast seeding. Let's do aerial seeding. Um, but quite honestly, it has been dry, although we did get a, a nice little shower or two that uh, went across the state yesterday. Um, but, but because it's been so dry, it's going to be hard to get uh, good seed to soil contact and enough moisture to get germination and emergence to occur, um, especially once it's down inside the, the corn and the soybean canopy. So um, right now, I, I guess the the story here is um, because of the dry conditions, um, let's try to time that aerial seeding or that broadcast seeding um, with some um, rain events that, that can help us along there. Um, that also may mean that, you know, from an aerial and broadcast seeding perspective, uh, we may want to think about a slightly higher seeding rate um, just, again, to ensure that we get um, an, enough plants growing out there, right? Um, and then we may also um, want to be thinking about uh, some of the larger seeded uh, species just because they will typically um, do a little bit better when we get into some of these drier conditions. Um, and I'm thinking specifically the, the winter rye or cereal rye 
um, because while, yes, we can get some good growth with it yet this fall, especially if it gets up and going, um, we can get some really good benefits out of it um, come the, the spring. So from a, a drought perspective, um, that's kind of the thought process. Or I guess maybe the other thing that we could mention is uh, typically as we get into September, um, because of the cooler weather and because of uh, generally more reliable rainfall starts to come, um, we could also think about postponing that seeding and, and doing it right after soybean harvest or right after corn harvest um, using a, a grain drill or um, doing a broadcast seeding in, in something like a vertical tillage uh, tool across it to get some um, soil um, contact with that seed. So that is, a, that is still an option. Um, with those, again, I, I would generally say that we probably want to move to something like a if, if we're on the earlier side of things, something like oats, uh, if we tend to get uh, pushed back a little bit, um, if, if we do really have a slow harvest, um, then, you know, again, thinking of a, a winter cereal rye um, is going to be our, our best option there. Um, now I'm going to move slightly into kind of thinking about how do we deal with the, the wind damaged um, uh, crops and Generally speaking, I, I think of cover crops, you know, kind of as a, I'll call it a business as usual um, in, in the crops that are still going to be machine harvested to have a combine run through that field. Um, if we don't have combines running through the fields, um, especially in the, the corn fields that are, are flatter, um, have a, I'll call it a denser mat um, closer to the ground. Um, aerial and broadcast seeding is going to be a little bit tough um, just because um, we're, we're, well, getting the seed to the ground is going to be a little bit more challenging, um, but then also just a lot less light penetration um, to get that uh, seed to germinate and, and emerge. Um, and so in, in those situations um, where we where we can and where there's, you know, I'll say it's uh, low resource concerns, um, we may want to run across those fields with a, a vertical tillage or a disc, something like that, just to size and, and break up that residue a little bit, um, allow us to get that seed down into the ground um, with a, you know, even with a, a broadcast or an aerial application that can work fairly well. But then that also allows for a, a grain drill to move through quite, quite a bit more easily, at least on the earlier end of this. Um, but generally speaking, if it was just root lodged and if it's at greater than a 45 degree angle, um, an aerial or a broadcast seed um, will get down into the ground. Um, and, and as those leaves um, dry up, we should still have uh, a pretty good light penetration through the canopy to be able to get uh, emergence to occur there. Um, you know, and, and the other thing I would mention, and I've been mentioning to farmers that have talked to me, is that, you know, this is just not a one size fits all year. Um, we're going to have to uh, have flexibility. Um, we're going to have to look and see what's going to work best in our situation, in our in our cropping systems that we have. I think you nailed it with a this is not a one size fits all uh, kind of year. And I, I think this is uh, this is the time for active management, a lot of scouting and and uh, having a lot of conversations with um, getting different opinions on what to do. So uh, thank you for that uh, overview. And uh, now as we shift, uh, I'll introduce uh, Mike Henderson. Um, and, and wanted to just highlight some of the um, the opportunities or the conservation programs that are out there. As I always say, as we get into this part of the conversation, I I don't uh, we don't want people to get too tied up on the acronyms or the, the different uh, sources of funding. Uh, what we really want to do is just highlight the variety of opportunities 
and have folks really uh, uh, become aware of those and make use of them and uh, contact the conservation office and uh, talk to somebody. And whether it's a state program, a federal program, a local program, uh, you know, there's somebody there that can direct traffic and help uh, connect the dots. But uh, but to that end, at the state level, uh, we do have a cost share that's available for uh, for cover crops, uh, for uh, uh, strip till, no-till, and nitrification inhibitors. Uh, I want to also highlight that uh, we have our uh, crop insurance cover crop program uh, that will uh, once again be offered this year. This is where we offer a $5 per acre premium reduction for uh, an acre planted to cover crops. Uh, we've had three very successful years of that program. Uh, uh, last year, uh, nearly 200,000 acres enrolled, and uh, we're looking to expand that. So a sign-up for that will start occurring in October. For everything else that at the state level, for, from a traditional cost share standpoint, uh, get in now, uh, pick up the phone and call because uh, there are dollars available. Uh, but, you know, time is time is of the essence. Now is the time to be, to be doing this. Um, the other thing I wanted to highlight is there there is some assistance through the state uh, for uh, rebuilding uh, windbreaks. I know this is probably something that's more targeted at spring, but again, it's uh, never too early to be starting those conversations. There are dollars available for uh, trees, uh, and, and I want my folks to remember that as well. Uh, with that, I'm going to introduce USDA NRCS agronomist Mike Henderson to uh, talk about uh, things from the USDA perspective. Mike? Okay, I appreciate the opportunity to uh, visit with everybody on this. And uh, uh, some really good points have been uh, brought up on the uh, funding opportunities. Uh, a lot of times you'll uh, come into a USDA service center and uh, talking to that field staff. Uh, you may not know if you're talking to a state employee, a district employee, or a uh, federal employee. Uh, and that's really uh, by function of our uh, USDA service centers that they're seamless. Uh, we also try to do that with our uh, funding opportunities uh, to provide that one-stop uh, place to really get the information. Uh, really want to highlight within the uh, NRCS side of the uh, funding, it is a continuous sign-up. Uh, so anytime uh, you want to or interested in something, uh, cost share or financial assistance, uh, talk to our field office, uh, get in and sign uh, application. Uh, right now with the uh, COVID protocol, uh, it'd be great uh, if you could uh, call into the office, make an appointment, uh, because some of our offices are still uh, on a uh, basically a locked door status and appointment only uh, with that. And a good place to go for information is uh, farmers.gov. You can get a lot of information on the programs that are coming up. Uh, as well as do some of the electronic business uh, on there, uh, even uh, signing up uh, for the programs. Uh, so with that kind of the, uh, the in a nutshell of the the, the the background of it, uh, we have uh, NRCS uh, requested additional funds uh, for the uh, Derecho area on the affected uh, crops. Uh, Secretary Purdue will be making an announcement uh, later this week. Uh, on those uh, funds, uh, but really we're trying to target those for uh, cover crops uh, as well as some of the uh, damage that was done to some of the livestock systems and high tunnel systems across that area that we've put in with NRCS funding uh, to repair those uh, conservation practices, those systems, get it back in place and make sure that we have uh, the environmental uh, benefits. 
do appreciate uh, uh, Mark's comment on uh, it's not a uh, one size fits all. Uh, every field is a little bit different. Uh, driving down the road, they may look very similar, but you get out in those fields uh, and they're very, very different. Uh, same way with the windbreaks and some of the tree damage. Uh, and uh, like Secretary Nag had said, uh, spring is really the time to put those trees in. Uh, but now is the time to start cleaning those up, getting the uh, site prepped uh, so it's ready for uh, spring. So going into the field office, talking to uh, uh, those folks, they'll be able to come out, help you with that uh, conservation plan, help you with uh, uh, management strategies. Uh, to be successful on that. So that that's kind of the, the programs. Uh, we've got a lot of uh, uh, funds available, both through the, uh, the normal channels, uh, uh, through the statewide, as well as this uh, uh, concentrated area uh, as we move forward with that. Uh, one of the things that I'd like to just kind of bring up on that uh, management of the corn out there with cover crops. Mark brings some really good points up. Uh, we need to really think about the basics when we go out there with those cover crops. Need, can you get that seed to the soil? Is there gonna be moisture for that uh, seed to germinate? And is there gonna be light for that uh, seedling once it does uh, germinate and start growing? And as long as you concentrate on those basics and look at those field situations of how can we um, ensure that cover crop uh, placement uh, for success, uh, we can move forward with that in a positive manner. Again, it was an interesting conversation to be a part of and getting to listen to everything that's going on in Iowa. I think it's been definitely a big discussion around the agriculture industry right now. And I hope that some folks out there got their questions answered. Yeah, I'm hoping so too. I think there's still a a lot of questions yet to be answered, but hopefully we'll be able to tackle some of those on the Ag News Daily Podcast. Folks, give us a listen to past episodes if you haven't already. We've been talking about the Sturacho storm and other important issues impacting the world of agriculture. You can listen to any of our past episodes at agnewsdaily.com or interact with us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Ag News Daily. Ashton, with that, should we let the people go? Let's let them go.